Welcome everyone to another episode of Framerate. Today I am joined by co-hosts Patrick and Jamie. And we are, uh, we're not always the three of us on Framerate, it just depends on schedule. So it's nice that the three of us are here. Today we're going to cover Inception, um, Christopher Nolan's, in my opinion, masterpiece from 2010. Um, hit 10 years this year. Uh, winner of four, Wow, 10 years ago. Yeah, winner of four Oscars. And uh, kind of a film that I find to be in different conversations, both overrated and underrated at the same time for different reasons, which is kind of unusual. I feel like I don't get that a lot in films, which we'll get into that. But um, before we start talking about the movie too much, yeah, so we're at um, third week of March here. So kind of lots of things going on in the world right now. And uh, a lot of us are spending a lot of time indoors um, because we're on lockdown. And so it's a good opportunity for us to kind of uh, catch up on planning and material and episodes. So we're really happy to be able to get together and do something positive that, you know, we know makes us happy. We know makes you happy. You may also be, you know, telecommuting and spending less time at work. So you may have time to listen to more of our podcasts. Um, and of course, thank you to all our patrons for their generous support. Uh, even during times of financial hardship, we've even had new people sign up, which is like really heartwarming considering what's going on so thank you all you guys for your support um let's see i'll start with patrick what's what's your history and uh you know your your personal um, journey with inception so in, inception for me was such an event when it came out and I, I remember very specifically the circumstances you know when i first saw it which i'll get to in a second and, and i remember being so excited about the lead up to it because we were just so enamored of of the batman trilogy that he was working on and just like the, i mean between 2008 and 2012 that was like th those were like the movies we were most excited about in the green household uh and i feel like um when inception came out it, for one thing, it was nice to have a non-Batman Christopher Nolan movie again because you know I was such a fan of Memento and I and I thought he was so incredibly gifted. But I had kind of it, it was I was excited to see what he would do with a non-Batman property in the midst of like this you know incredible run that he was having. And this is one of the last um, big releases before you had kids, right? Uh, well, three years before we had kids, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, so right. you had more opportunities, but this is this we is did the, we this did is the smaller green household. So I so I, so actually the the last. Nolan film that we saw before having our son Jude was uh, the final of the Batman trilogy, which we did not get to go to the premiere of because we were in Italia when it came out. Isn't so, that right? A little, a little bit of a Dan Ferlito moment. Um, but anyway, so when Inception came out, I, we were both acting in a play. We were doing a play in uh, Warwick, Rhode Island, which is not like a great theater place, but we were getting paid for it. It was a summer gig. It was a lot of fun. And it was a big cast. And a lot of us were fucking huge Christopher Nolan fans. Um, including our really dear friend Andrew Burnap, who's now become he's probably going to get a Tony Award. He's become like an incredible actor on Broadway and um, he's okay. uh, yeah. doing a lot of really great shit. But anyway, at this time, you know, he was just starting out and acting. You know, we were all basically kids and we were like just so full of gossip for this movie and how excited we were about it. And I just remember we all went to go see it after we, we got out of a performance and we all had our fucking stage makeup on and everything. And we went to this late night showing um, and just like, oh, my God, it was just such a fucking great movie the same way i felt about interstellar too when i walked out of that movie and i was just so blown away by uh how christopher nolan can can so deftly manage the macro and the micro you know the universal and the purely internal and at the emotional and the and the action like i just i just feel like he does such an amazing job of balancing all of these very difficult and sometimes contradictory film elements you know he's a guy who makes movies that are really exciting and pulse pounding that also feel like kind of like small dramas on stage with two people you know what i mean it's just absolutely incredible to go really quickly i also just was really blown away by tom hardy because it was the first thing that i had ever seen him and i i, I had missed yeah. some of his earlier films and he's become like one of my absolute like top three favorite actors since that point. I think he's just uh, just absurdly talented. And that was the first time I saw him in anything that I noticed and I couldn't get over how good he was. And also just Hans Zimmer's score, which as soon as it, as soon as I heard it, I was like, this is going to define the way scores sound for a while. And it did. You know, a lot of the things in Inception defined movies in the first half of the, of the 2010 era. Oh, yeah. I really feel like not only just the blah and all that shit, but just like the the this this like very slowed down orchestral electronic and themic scoring for action tentpole movies was like everybody was emulating that sound because it was so well done in inception even down to the shots that the, a lot of the the uh, sfx shots in the movie were copied to like you know the end of uh, of the earth in films even doctor strange of course like really classically aping that 
really iconic shot where the city's folding in on itself and inception. It's like, it, it just, it, as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is a movie that will really make a mark on things. And it did. And I'm surprised that it hasn't had better legs in the second half of the 2010s, because I really feel like it's a movie that people don't talk about anymore. I agree, which is a, uh, a shame since for as interesting and cool and intricate as the film is, I think it's totally on that level of um, what Tim Shanahan says in his book where he says, um, I'll have to paraphrase it, but you know, the greatest, the greatest films start when you walk out of the theater, you know? And, and I think I talk so much about inception with people. I think there's so much more there than what meets the eye in the screen uh, on the screen or in the script. But um, uh, Jamie, what, what, uh, what's your history with the film? What do you, what do you think of it? So, like everybody else, I think it's a masterpiece. I've been following uh, Christopher Nolan's films since The Prestige and Memento. And I remember when I saw The Prestige, at the end of it, I was like, I remember thinking like, so what just happened? Like, I couldn't, I had to watch it again and think, oh, it was phenomenal. And what I love about Christopher Nolan's films is that they work on several layers. It's not just this fun action film like Michael Bay or whatever, where it's just color and explosion and Nolan's films are layered and they're deep and they're philosophical and they're theological and they they're asking 10,000 questions at one time, but also very simple. You know, you could go in and, and, and enjoy those films on a very um, basic level. And I, I love that too. I, I, if it's, I mean, I don't know. Like I, it, I, I say that you could probably enjoy it on a basic level, but I don't know if that's actually possible because I think Christopher Nolan films, they demand that you look into it more. They demand that you give it more attention. And, you know, when I knew, I remember when it was announced that he was going to be directing a Batman film, I was like, holy cow, this is going to be amazing. And they were, um, and they got better and better. Actually, the third Batman, the third Batman film is my favorite. I think it's just perfect. Um, it spoke to me the most of, of his trilogy. Um, so then when inception came out again, I remember at the end of the, the, the film, I was sitting in the theater and you see the thing spinning. And then I remember at one point during the film, I had forgot that they were in dream space or whatever, whatever they call that, where they're, they've dived into someone's head and they did it again and they did it again. And they're going deeper and deeper and deeper until finally when, yeah, I, 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 I had forgot how far in we were. So at one point when they're pulling back, I was like, Oh, that's right. They're on a plane. I completely had forgotten that they were on a plane. That's how far into the film I was. It was just phenomenal. And, um, the idea of questioning what reality is and, um, what the truth might be. And it's on top of the incredible special effects, the great acting, it's a really great role for, um, Ellen Page, uh, who shot to fame with the film Juno, uh, I thought she was very, very well uh, cast. Um, she, they could have cast this, you know, gorgeous young blonde woman for this role, and they didn't. They went with this short, dark-haired, a little bit androgynous woman, and uh, I thought it was pitch perfect. I, every from Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I thought was perfectly cast, to Tom Hardy, to um, Ben. How do you say his last name? Um, Ben, what's his name? Is it Ben? No, Tom Ken. Badger? Ken. Oh. No, no, no. Tom Badger. Tom Ken, um, shit. Oh, oh, Ken Watanabe. Yeah. Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe. Yeah, I thought he course. was. He, uh, he makes just, everything so great. Yeah. I feel like he just has the most best, like, some of the best screen presence of anybody. Yeah, his delivery. Uh, I, mean, I mean, his accent, but his delivery is just phenomenal. He almost doesn't matter what he's saying. It's like it's so fucking packed with subtext and emotion. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, like that, that. I mean, it's an ensemble cast made of movie stars, which is cool too. Kind of like Magnolia in that way, right? It's like this cast mm-hmm. of just all these people mm-hmm. you can't wait to see what they can do, and they're all very humble in it, including Leonardo DiCaprio, who is one of the great, you know, biggest movie stars in history, and and he felt like a part of this ensemble. Mm-hmm. Before we get back to Dan, I, I want to say something, Jamie, that you, you said that I thought was really astute, which is that, and 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 which you kind of went back on, but I think you were actually right to say, which is I think you can watch these movies simply if that's all you're there to do, and it will function on that level for you. And although, although he, he gives you so many invitations to go deeper than that. I think for some people, these movies work as, as sort of escapist light entertainment a little bit because 
in some ways, Inception is basically just kind of a heist movie that got messed up, right? Like, but the heist parts of it, it feels like the Italian job or something. It feels like you're watching, you know, like a bunch of really skilled operatives who know what they're doing. You know, like everybody's got their role to play. They're fucking finely tuned. They're traveling around the world. They're doing their thing. They're trying. And then, you know, if you don't think too much about what it would mean to incept an idea, and if you don't think about too much about what it would mean to not know if you were in a dream or not, or what if you killed yourself in what actually wasn't a dream, you know, all these things that eventually become so morally difficult to consider. Like you can watch it as just a piece of, of entertainment and it works so well because the fucking film craft is better than almost anybody else in the world. I feel like his ability to make a goddamn movie is almost peerless. I really feel like his attention to detail, how much he doesn't, he, and he's not like, he's not like anal retentive about it. He's not trying to control the set, but there are some things that he doesn't budge on. And one of those things is practical effects. So you have a movie that, you know, has some of the most iconic digital effects in the last 20 years in it. And yet you, they're, they're used almost never. They're so sparing because so much of it is shot in camera with, with really crazy shit, like flats, you know, like using things that look three dimensional from one angle, but are actually two dimensional and that were actually painted by hand on the set just to give the illusion of depth. Like these so crazy good. shit. So many people would take so many shortcuts. But what happens is that the second you take a shortcut, you think like, well, where else can I save money? Where else can I skimp mm -hmm. on stuff? What else is mm -hmm. not going to be in the frame? When you see Dunkirk, for example, where the big fight fight sequences don't have that many people in them, they don't have many people in them because there's nobody. Nobody's digital. They're not adding a bunch of shit to it. There's no random dust particles flying through the air. It's actual explosions going off, right? Like, and, and I think that translates so effectively to the frame. And I think why Inception works and why Memento works and why The Prestige works, these are all movies that are fundamentally about magic, right? These are all things that don't actually, like, uh, the, the, on paper, Inception looks like it would be such a stupid movie because the concept is so ridiculous behind it. It's so out there, right? But because it's made with such an actual honesty, it's made saying like you're at the movies, you are not watching a documentary. I'm showing you something fantastical and I'm going to make this thing work within the confines of itself so extraordinarily well that you can't question it in the universe in which it operates. And then when you see the movie, you feel it in a really deep logical way that it makes an intuitive sense, even though in outside of that filmic universe, it doesn't, you know, and we're going to immerse you in this world so much that we can even have a character giving full exposition, explaining how basically the plot and the story and the world work directly to one of the characters, which is a cipher for us. And it doesn't ever pull me out of the film at all. Even now that I know how it all works, I'm like, yes, like I am Ellen page right now, her expression of, you can see the, the, she's obviously really smart, but she's being exposed to this for the first time. And in the scene, just to use an example of what you're talking about, since we'll talk about special effects too, the scene at the cafe where she's having her first dream training, basically, right? Where eventually DiCaprio reveals to her, what, what do you think you're doing right now, right? You're dreaming. Um, and just her, watching her expression and watching her think about what he's saying and trying to piece together how it's all working and then being presented with it and all that. Um, and as the street starts to explode, like that's a great special effect right there because it was basically, I think it summarizes all my favorite directors, but in this particular case, Nolan's attitude and, you know, we've seen Ridley Scott and Villeneuve have similar attitudes of build as much as you can for real, clean it up, add stuff, do what you can't do because it's too dangerous with CGI, but minimize it as much as you can. That explosion sequence is a great example of that because... They really did explode softer things like paper and vegetables and stuff. They actually had small explosives in those things. And then they digitally, for example, the pot shots that are making the road explode, that's all CGI would have been too dangerous for the actors. But they really did blow the windows and all the stuff out of that cafe around them with a giant air horn. And it was like intense. And they filmed that scene in slow motion and like the actors aren't even flinching. Like there's just the whole assembly of that scene is just amazing. And I think it really visually represents well how the rest of the film is made and how Nolan's philosophy as a filmmaker is in general. Right. And what I love about uh, inception is again, like you said, there's a point where they're telling you the plot. They're telling you, this is what's happening, but they're asking you as they're asking Ellen Page's character's name, which I can't remember right now. I need you to believe this. And oh, yeah, if this I mean. is going to work. Okay. I, I need you to believe this. 
And if it's going to work, I really need you to believe this. And so we're being, so we're being asked that as the audience too. Like, yes, this is the world that we're about. So there's, and there's some similarity with the matrix going on there too, which is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but it's 10 miles away from the matrix there. They, there's some similar, like, yeah, we're sort of going into this dream space or this space that isn't real, but it sort of is because it's inside someone's head. Um, so there's rules there. Um, it's extraordinary. Like it, it's extraordinary. And it came off, you know, 10 years after the matrix, what it would have been, I think five years after the last matrix film. So what was happening on screen in interest and in inception I think audiences were sort of familiar with to some degree where it's a world within a world. This isn't really real. This is created. You have some, you can change things. You can have some power. You can manipulate things. So we're very familiar with it. And yet it managed to tell it's a completely different story and in a way that was completely fresh and like mind blowing again, like every time I see that film, I, I take away things that I, that I had never seen before things I didn't pick up on. Um, uh, you know, for instance, as everyone knows, I'm such a big fan of, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo. There's a full there's, she's wearing the same suit that Kim Novak wears in the film, uh, in one scene, her yeah. hair is up the same way and everything. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. That's really um, cool. and I love, I, I think Nolan is the best director of his generation hands down. Well, maybe him. I don't know. I think him and uh, Denny are around the same age. Um, both of them. I mean, I think they're Titans and he continues. And I think actually it was inception, the film he made between the, the second and the last Batman, because he stepped away from Batman, yeah. made a different film. So it was, so then he came back to starting arises was 2012. Yeah. Um, it came out like the week we got married in 2012. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I, I, I loved that. He was like, you know, I, I really want to tell a different story. And he, knocked it out of the park he has never made a bad film there's no film in his repertoire where you're like oh yeah that's it's not great his films are amazing and inception yeah it's i don't think i don't know if anyone says it's overrated and i feel like the people who might say it's overrated don't understand it and i don't like to say that about like well you don't understand it because i don't want to be told that about a film that i don't maybe like or but truly it's a film that commands your attention and it commands that you look deeper. And there's one scene in the film again, too, just for the sake of, I don't know, film trivia where it, he Nolan recreates his own version of the scene in 2001, where he walks oh, into totally, the room totally. and, and the man, like, cause Nolan's such a huge fan of, of 2001. And it's just, I mean, his visuals are just out of, they're out of this world. It's amazing. Yeah. Really, really phenomenal. Got it. I think, I, so I think part of why it's overrated, I think it's sort of twofold, in my opinion. I, th I think one is because it was so successful and so copied a lot in the early part of this of that decade that I think people got a little bit tired of some of the tropes that it introduced, um, and some of the sort of filmmaking ideas and the score and a lot of a lot of the things. It just it just was very popular and it was very copied, it, even down to like the typeface that it uses. You know, it uses uh, not Brandon Grotesque. It uses. Um, Oh, I don't know. Gotham, which is the font, the font that uh, was developed, you know, it, it was used by the Obama campaign. It look, it looks very much, it's just everything about it looks very much like it came out in 2010. And this is not, at least not a the, bad thing. This is at least the third separate reference to the Matrix because I was thinking about it too. I just hadn't said it yet. But this is something kids say all the time who haven't seen the Matrix. When they see it, then they're like, oh, now I get where all these other 18 movies that came out after totally. this did it. But the Matrix was the first one. Inception, similar. I mean, obviously, it still pulls from things that came before it, the same way Ridley Scott did when he made Blade Runner or Alien or whatever, um, right? You're you're pulling something. You're standing on the shoulder of some giant you know, director below you or before you, and you're trying to introduce your new things. Um, and yeah, I think the, the Matrix, not just because of the dream um, aspect of it, which was a really good observation by Jamie, but um, yeah, just in the way that it has influenced cinema and influenced sci-fi since um totally and and i think it's easy later to view something as overrated because you're like oh i've seen this a million times but it's like yeah but you have right. to put it in context and you get used to it 
everybody forgets what bullet time was like the first time you saw the matrix in the nineties. Like because, because everybody, every fucking commercial for 20 years has used that. Right. And you go back to the source and not only is it something you've seen before, but it's something that was done worse than that because the technology wasn't where it was ultimately. So it's like, you're seeing a more primitive version of it. And it's that case for any number of movies. Inception has held up extraordinarily well, but I do think that it was really popular. And because of that, it influenced a lot of things that came out. But the second, even Prometheus, Remember the trailer for Prometheus? It had that horn because Inception made that, that big <laughs> horn sound. And then everything had the horn. And then when the Prometheus trailer came out, the first one, which was an awesome trailer, it was like, yeah. oh, hey, they borrowed that from Inception. Oh, yeah. It really and, redefined and even, the genre. And even Dunkirk with the fucking ticking clock in the trailer has – every trailer has a ticking clock now. So people definitely pay attention to Christopher Nolan marketing, I have to say. But the second reason why I think it, it – uh, it gets talked about as being overrated again, I think inaccurately, I think we all can agree on that, but I think why some people bring that up is because of the ending. Um, and I think that I think people focused way too much on that because it's obviously sort of a cliffhanger depending on how you're looking at it. And because it's the sort of like, I, I think people, because Christopher Nolan has established such a reputation as a logician, um, as somebody who makes movies that like are puzzles to be figured out, that I think a lot of people walked out of the movie feeling like they didn't have that last puzzle piece and then kind of arguing about it instead of what clearly that it was supposed to mean, which is just like the Decker rep argument. The, the idea is like, it's, it's supposed to live in your Blade head Runner and moment. in your heart. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But the movie itself is not a Blade Runner movie. The movie itself is, is, uh, is much closer to something that, you know, Bradbury would have written. You know, it's, it's something that it operates on a really logical framework and that's why it's believable, even though it's fantastical. Right. Um, and I feel like, there's no there's no weirdnesses in it, right? And Bl Blade Runner is is a continuing accumulation of strangenesses that make it feel unique and and real and lived, right? Inception is not. Inception is a polished Hollywood vehicle that happens to be really smart and happens to work logically, even though it's kind of crazy. And so at the end of it, I think people want this big boom. They want to kind of get an answer. There's this huge unresolved thing about this totem. And, and I think, you know, Nolan was very open about saying he was never going to tell people, you know, one or the other because that wasn't the point. And I think because it's Christopher Nolan, because everybody has to have an opinion and because everybody feels like they're, they can be as smart as he is, you know, everybody has to prove that they have a way to figure it out. And I think people got kind of tired of that argument. I know I did. Um, I, I feel like it's still something people kind of go back and forth on. It's unfortunate because the point of the movie isn't the final shot at all. Well, what's interesting, though, is that I – maybe I just – don't engage enough Inception fans or whatever, but I never think when I think about Inception, I'd never think about the ending. And because there's so many other things happening, there's so many other questions. There's like, there's just a myriad of, of, uh, beats in the film that you're just like, Whoa, well, we were re looking into that. What's happening. But what I love about that ending shot though, is what it's asking you is who are you? That's what he's asking. Who are you? Um, and that's not a question. It's, yeah, I, it's not a question for Leonardo DiCaprio's character. What, what is audience. it or isn't it? It's who is he? Who are you? What do you believe? That's the question. And that is brilliant science fiction. That is good science fiction. And the people who get hung up on that, I guess I understand. The answer isn't the, the point. The answer is never the point. The question, even in The Matrix, Trinity in the first one, she goes, it's not the answer. It's the question that drives you. That's one of the brilliant uh, uh, pieces of the original Matrix films where the questions get bigger and deeper and stronger and uh, Inception is the same way. And what I love about Christopher Nolan, despite him being this titan of his industry um, and not just like, not like say a Steven Spielberg or, or a hack like J.J. Abrams who's like Mr. Safe, whatever. Um, Christopher Nolan can connect with the the smallest parts of who we are. He understands the intimacy of the human heart. And I'm not saying that those other people don't, but what I'm saying is Christopher Nolan, it comes out in his films. Yet there are these big, shiny, beautiful, glossy things that everyone can relate to. Well, that I, think is very... I think Steven Spielberg is actually one of the only other directors I would say that has done that at Christopher Nolan's level, honestly. Yeah, I, Maybe I, not think, now, Spielberg, but, like, I think I think Spielberg but, used to, for sure. Spielberg, yeah, but the first 20 years of his career. Oh, yeah. But what I'm saying but Spielberg is, had is misses. Just, Nolan hasn't had any misses. He hasn't well, had any misses. But Spielberg what I'm saying about Nolan, though, Yeah, well, what I'm Nolan's saying about time. Nolan is he's, you know, he's been pumping out huge film after huge film, and he's able to relate to the the 
like the the meekest part of who we are, the the most private part of who we are, asking very tender questions, despite the vehicle being colossal and beautiful and taking, you know, we, you were talking about each detail being meticulously crafted. He's also doing that with us, with the viewer, um, asking us very specific, if we're willing to, to look at ourselves, he's asking He's asking a lot from us, and not a lot of directors do that. Not a lot of directors know how to do that. And I think part of that comes from something that's rare in directors, which is humility. He's a very humble man. Denis is very similar. Um, that humility allows people to allows him as an artist to speak to us, and uh, I think it's powerful, and that is underrated. But I think people miss that. That's a question at the end. I, I really, I really do. I think you're, I think you're right about that. And and I think that. It's it's hard to put ourselves back in that place, but in between like 2010 and 2013, like every fucking meme was about if the top was going to fall over or not. Like it was like everybody, it became like a shorthand for this sort of unanswered question, and it was it was it's so infuriating because like you, I, I didn't fucking care about that at all. Like the, that wasn't the point mm-hmm. of the movie, but I think in popular consciousness, in some circles, it kind of got wrapped up into this whole like, oh, Christopher Nolan's like too intelligent for his own good to make a movie that makes sense or something. And I think people get kind of hung up on that, which is super unfortunate because there's so much more going on in the movie than that. And it's a beautiful question to end the film on, I think. He has more in common with Alfred Hitchcock, I think, than he does with Spielberg, whereas Alfred Hitchcock was really asking very powerful questions in his films. Um and you know whether it was Rear Window or The Man Who Knew Too Much or North by Northwest or Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock had these powerful, powerful stories asking his audience very human questions. And uh, I think um, Nolan has picked up that mantle seamlessly. I think David Fincher is another director who does that very well as well, where he can really connect to to um, the the most beautiful parts of who we are and the most difficult parts of who we are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, I since we've already talked about the ending and a little bit of the philosophy, and obviously we don't have time to. We could talk for a couple hours about this movie. I think there's enough concepts. We're, we're trying to keep this to frame rate length. Um, I was going to mention a couple of bits of trivia. Just some of them you can find for yourself online, but I've read a lot about it, and I think it's interesting. Also, like Jamie was mentioning, you kind of watch this movie and pick up something new every time because there's so much detail and density. But when they were talking about how to potentially get this thing set up to have a flight that's long enough so that the mark can be down long enough. At some point, somebody mentioned a train and um, Cobb was arguing about it. And he says, I don't like trains. And then a train runs through downtown LA when they're being assaulted. And then a train is in his like beach basement dream level. And a train is how they committed suicide to get out of limbo. So there's a train theme that I'd never picked up on before that obviously is something that, is traumatic for um, Cobb's character or for Cobb. And for any fans of devs, I just want to say tram lines. Okay. There's a philosophical similarity going on there, I think, because trains are on a fixed route, right? And any deviation from that represents chaos. And if you if you get off at the wrong stop, you're fucked. I think that's that's kind of the idea. Which is interesting, though, because then you have the essence of chaos with the train going through downtown L.A. There was no train track. It was just barreling through. It was just like chaos coming in saying, sorry, this is, this is how life is. It's very right. It's organization weaponized almost. Yeah. Another great example of practical effects where it's like, it looks so real. How'd they do that? Well, they put a real train on a really low flatbed rig and then put covers on the outside of the wheels. And then they CGI the pavement getting torn up as the train's going through. So the effect looks real and it's a real, real weight of a real train is running into all the parked cars and stuff. It's like, you can't, you know, you can't, and we've talked about it before. I think we've mentioned this movie while talking about other films. And of course there's the very famous uh, that you can look up the uh, rotating gravity hallway scene. It's like, looks so good and so real. And you look into it and you realize that it's because it is real. (laughs) Like it's an actual hallway rotating. They built when it would have been so easy just to rotate the camera like everybody else does. But like Stanley Kubrick, who built a rotating set in 2001, no one built a rotating set for reception. He built an entire hundred foot section of hotel on a rotating metal rig. He had them choreograph that fight scene a couple of times and then he spun it at half speed and then he said, all right, let's shoot it and spun it at full speed. And they just had to reenact the same fight scene except on all four walls of that hallway. I mean, that is just stupendous filmmaking. Like that is knowing where to put your money on the screen to really get that shot that is like so unbelievable that you can't even believe it when you find out that it was 
really shot that way. I mean, it's amazing. It's crazy. It's crazy. The only other, just not to derail this even more, but but I, I really fucking hope we finally talk about Fury Road at some point because I brought it up on like every other frame rate episode we've had so far. Oh, yeah, but once should. again, I will say, I really feel like George Miller is the only other filmmaker I can think of who has the same attention to physical effects as Nolan because in, in, uh, in Fury Road especially, all of these sequences with these enormous like semi trucks flying through the air and these just crazy pyrotechnic shots that was all physical with almost no CG augmentation whatsoever. Just like Nolan, it would have been so easy to film it another way. But when you're watching it, you feel like you're watching real events unfolding. And in the framework of both of those movies, which are both fantastical science fiction kind of crazy films, you're watching something really believable happening because it's not even believable. It's actually real, you know, and that's an amazing, amazing gift to give an audience. Yeah, totally. Um, I was going to say, uh, oh, I put it up on Facebook cause I was like, Hey, if anybody wants to join this viewing party, like I'm going to watch inception today cause I got to record. And so a couple of people like left mock comments about the film. And, um, one of my friends, I told him I give him a shout out. His name's Charles Harmon. I went to the, uh, FAA Academy with him. Anyways, he wrote down, um, pay attention throughout the film and try and figure out what Cobb's totem is. And it kind of like threw me off. Cause I was like, oh, Okay. Obviously, this question is implying that the thing that he's holding through 80% of the film is not his totem. And so you think about it for a second, and then you're like, right, that is Maul's totem. He admitted that was Maul's totem, and then he took it from her. And so then I thought about it more, and I was like, oh, and he leaves that behind on the table at the end of the film. So again, back to that sort of what happens at the end argument, which again, I don't like to define. It's just like Decarep to me. I think it's so much more beautiful left asked as a question. Like Jamie said, it makes you question your reality and who you are. Super important. But assuming he has a different totem, um, there's a different significance to him leaving the top because to me, that's him leaving Maul behind completely, which he could never do before. So whether he's leaving her behind to walk into a dream or whether he's leaving her behind to walk into reality and be with his real children. There's something there where he is like physically setting her aside and leaving her behind. And I'd never seen that before in that way until my friend asked me that question. I do have the answer by the way, but I'll pass it around to you guys real quick. Unless you don't have anything to say. <laughs> I was too busy adding Fury Road to our Patreon list because I'm like, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna bring this up again without talking about it. No, I, I think so. So I think that's a a big insight into Dom's character: the fact that that was Maul's totem the whole time, and it goes to a, a deeper problem with him as a as a person. I think, which is really difficult and kind of hard to reconcile because you're kind of rooting for him, even though he's a criminal. You know, even though he's done these things, like you kind of want to to love this, this character. And, and that's something very deep and dark that he carries with him. But I don't, I don't know what the actual, what his totem was in that case. And it's the, I think the top is used for so much symbolism. I mean, God, it's almost over the top when he spins it Wait. in the safe and then closes the safe and locks it. I'm like, wow, that is on the nose, but that is still beautiful. You know, again, it's like Nolan, Schrod Schrodinger's totem, right? Right. But Nolan has a way of doing that, right. Where he can like lay something out to you. And it's like, Here's the way a movie is organized. I'm just going to change the names of stuff and just paste it into here. And then uh, let's just explain the plot to this girl over here. And uh, oh, let's use direct symbolism. And I'll just like make this symbol into a real thing and then use it all the time to make philosophical points. Like it's like you got to be a badass to get away with such obvious shit because it's so beautiful. It's so well put together that you're like, man, I can see what you're doing after the eighth time that I've seen this film. But I am with you, man. Like, you got me. Like, I am following that. I still that fucking love it. Way. Don't change a thing, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I had to Google it because I didn't see anything obvious to me. But um, people on the intranets suggest that it's his, <laughs> uh, it's his ring. So his I wedding ring. I was going to say his cufflinks. Okay. He, only, his hands, he yeah. only is wearing his wedding ring in the dream levels. In reality, he doesn't have his ring on his finger. So that's probably his totem. I did, I did notice that, but I didn't think it was Which just is really that, cool. That's something that I picked up on yeah. one of the viewings of this movie. Yeah. Right. And it, again, it kind of, it gives you, it doesn't change the ending for me. It just adds another option and another intricate layer to the ending where I'm like, wow, there's several things that could be happening right now. And I don't need to know what it is because it's wonderful that everyone can kind of 
take their own conclusion out of it. And I think it just wraps the philosophy, the philosophical approach of the film in a bow so well, especially that, that little waver, right? Right before the camera cuts to black, you see the top waver, like it's going to fall. And then it cuts to black. It's just like, that's just a master stroke. I mean, right again, it's like, it's, and it's right there. It's not hidden. Uh, Some of his other films have had more obscure elements. Everything's there for you to find in this film, but it's just, from the custom made um, clothes, right? Every piece of clothes they're wearing is custom made. He didn't want anything to be able to picked up at a Target or anything like that. He made it timeless. If Unless you really look oh, for like yeah. the TV in the hotel room, you could probably figure out what era that's from. But generally speaking, he made their clothes timeless so that this could have happened in the 1920s like it could have happened in the 1980s or whenever. Um, and their clothing, their outfits change kind of as they're changing mindset and the stakes are raised. Like Arthur's clothes get more like intense. Again, all those details are just little things that were worked out. I've never been able to find any information on the van jump off the bridge, but I would put 90% likelihood that they did that for real. Because, I mean, you watch the scene in slow motion, it looks real. Like, it's so well done Mm -hmm. that I don't think they use CGI for that either. They really launched a van off a bridge. But anyways, I digress. Closing thoughts? Uh, Well, closing thoughts is, uh, or some are that, Christopher Nolan is releasing a new film in July, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, called Tenet. And actually, I saw 20 minutes of it when I went and saw I think it was Invisible Man. They just played 20 minutes of Tenet, and it was amazing. They played 20 minutes of it? 20 minutes. What is? I would have murdered everybody. I would have burned that theater down. What are they doing? (laughs) Are you kidding Uh, me? It was was very uh, nondescript what we were seeing. You don't know what's going on. There's no... You see things happening. It was 20 minutes. That's 20 minutes so long. I'm sure it wasn't like a five minute clip. <laughs> 20 minutes is a fucking long time. Game. Oh, Jamie just gave I, me the I, best I look ever. <laughs> I was looking at my watch like how long? Because thinking, oh, hey, it's a preview for Tenet. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, it's been seven minutes. I'm like, oh, it's been like 11 minutes. I'm like, oh, well, it was like 17 minutes. For, um, for everyone uh, that's at home and can't see us, I would say that Jamie shot daggers <laughs> at the rate of about 20 per second at, at uh, Patrick's face across the screen when he asked him if he, if he was sure it was 20 minutes. Parts. Yeah, I, I, I was shocked. I was shocked. I'm like, how how are we watching this much of this movie? I, I don't you know. What? No, no it wasn't. Not, I not saw it. It wasn't. No, it was. It was in front of. Um, a very terrible movie called The Rise of Skywalker. That's where it was in front of. I went and saw it. I went and saw it at. Um, oh, I went and man. saw it in in December uh, on Thursday. It was a Thursday night screening before the Friday opening, and they showed 17 minutes of Tenet. That's crazy, man. I would have sued the theater, murdered everyone. Oh, you know, I don't know anything about it. Like, I couldn't tell you what was going on. I mean, I couldn't Dan tell you what was Dan going on. Dan would have fucking like been hiding under his chair, crying and screaming. There were some things in it that, of course, that I won't tell you guys, but um, that where I was I like, swear to God, holy shit, what is going on in here? Like, I was like, I, you're watching it, and you're not really sure what you're seeing. It was really fascinating. I, I can't wait. I'm super excited. That's amazing. You know, I, it, 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 you might have been a couple layers down uh, in your dream states, you know, because <laughs> Dom and Maul spent 50 years together, right? Without Patrick believes, it. he <laughs> believes that I believe that I saw 17. I believe in you. We have an internal universe of fucking frame rate episodes now. <laughs> that, that was canon for people who listen to the Invisible Man episode. This was a, this was referencing that. Yes, this was referencing that. So I guess I'm on the outside. Well, I was also referencing the story that I told that I said I wasn't going to tell that I told you that you said that you believe that I believe. So. <laughs> Which again is not Jamie. Not nothing bad happened to Jamie, and we're fucking gaslighting him. He believes something extraordinary happened, and 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 I and I believe that he believes it in a, uh, in a, in a genuine know, way. I, I know this you story. Believe. You know, uh, yeah, he believes that Jamie's crazy, but I believe that he's crazy. It's <laughs> that he believes that he ate a hundred chicken nuggets in one sitting. I believe chicken that he nuggets. believes that he's not chicken crazy. tendies. Chicken tendies, <laughs> some nugs. Anyway, this movie. It, my my closing thought. My closing thought is I'm going to watch it tonight. Is, I'm uh, going to make some chocolate chip cookies. I'm I think I might stay up late and watch it too. This is a good quarantine movie. This film is just extraordinary, and it's so easy to, uh, I think, forget about how impactful it was at the time and to kind of get let it get lost in the hubbub of the amount of blockbusters that Nolan was churning out at that era. Um, but it is a special movie, and and I, I think it's every bit as special as Interstellar, which which to me is actually Nolan's masterpiece. I think it's better than Inception. Uh, but but I, I don't think, know. If I, they're so different. I can't. I can't. They're they're extremely different. But but I, I think I think I think they're both just magnificent. But to me, there's more of a precedent for Inception in other films of his, especially Memento, 
Whereas in uh, for me, Interstellar was just this complete, you know, rare bird that he turned out that just felt like uh, an extraordinary poetic statement. But I think that Interstellar is uh, is just is just an extraordinary achievement on so many levels, and I'm so glad that it gave us uh, such a great film to talk about. And just to wrap up quickly, going back to Spielberg, um, another thing that I think he does really well like Spielberg is he gives us time with characters uh, reacting to things that are happening. And, mm. and so I think part of why Ariadne doesn't, why, why the whole exposition overload sequence doesn't get annoying is because we're really seeing it through Ariadne's eyes and we feel like at home and like it's natural doing that partly mm. because the ideas are so interesting and there's so much to kind of keep up with, but also because I think we really see her internalizing this and trying to understand it. And we kind of get this idea of like, this is it's supposed to be hard to get like we're supposed to be kind of struggling with this. It's human to do that. And I think what Spielberg did a lot in his films, and I'm saying did because I, I don't really care very much about his movies nowadays. I don't really I don't I don't even like see a lot of them. Yeah, his movies are really safe, even though they're interesting, like Bridge of Spies, The Post, very well made, well crafted. But they're really safe films. And I just, really I'm not safe. that super interested in them anymore. But, yeah, but, me but either. a lot of my favorite films are from his first you know three decades of filmmaking. Oh, and sure. a lot of those movies, I think part of why they're so extraordinary is because they, they give us a fantastical premise and then they give us characters who are real full characters who feel completely lived in and three dimensional. And then as those characters interact with the fantastical and, and as they feel in awe and as they feel confused, we see their face and we, we hover on that and we, and we get an idea of the human experience that they're living through because it mirrors our own and it makes it feel less you know crazy. I, I, I will also say about Ariadne, that of course in Greek mythology Ariadne Thank is uh, is the key Ariadne is the is the key to getting out of the Minotaur's maze right she she provides the hero with the with the twine to get out just like in this film you know there's obviously very clear parallels with with her character but uh, for the audience she is our way of getting out of this Minotaur maze that we find ourselves in because because in in her being our cipher to understand the movie she's giving us a way to understand the narrative that comes stays with us for the rest of the film. And what is wonderful, though, is that at night, after I've already processed, after I've seen the film, and after I've already processed all of the logical stuff, and after I've already kind of gone through all the what ifs and all the the fun kind of like mind games of it, that's not what I remember. That's not what I fall asleep thinking about. I fall asleep thinking about Maul and what happened to her. I fall asleep mm-hmm. thinking about the, the the human stories at the at the base of all this. I fall asleep thinking about the amazing losses that were suffered in this film from a human standpoint. And I think about like how important it is to check in with my totem every once in a while and to make sure that like I'm aware that what I'm I mean, we've talked about this a million times. I have a tattoo to my arm. This is water. The whole fucking point is like whether or not this is real, whether or not I have an understanding for it, this is it. Like this is my fucking experience. And if I don't check in with that, if I'm not present with it, then I will be living in a dream state without realizing it. Right. Mm-hmm. The whole point is be fucking present and, and even if it is a dream, embrace it because like at the end of the day. You don't know what dreams are going to come next. Well, especially in the time that we're living in right now. I mean, we're living in, I mean, you, all three of us will be talking about this time in our lives in history until we're dead. This is something only people write movies about. And here we are living it. And uh, I think it's really, really important. I did want to just, my last comment I want to make is that I think Christopher Nolan had redefined the genre of science fiction. I think he has taken over the mantle in some ways of Ridley Scott. He's pushed science fiction further. Than Ridley Scott has. Uh, he's taken it one step further where I think the Wachowski siblings did that um, with The Matrix. And then Christopher Nolan came in and was like, I, I'm going to take it farther. And I think I don't know anyone who is making uh, science fiction films like he is. Nobody. There's nobody. There's there's no science fiction. Fi- unless I well, I would say Alex Garland, but I, I think it's a completely different it's a completely different texture to Alex Garland's films. It's a completely different, almost genre, even though it's also science fiction. They're dealing with, they're on two separate spectrums. So in terms of like the Hollywood blockbuster, there's nobody like Christopher Nolan. And uh, he he's a better filmmaker than um, really Scott is these days. He's a better filmmaker than pretty much anybody. I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's, yeah. He's, he's about as good as it gets. We'll see, we'll see when Villeneuve's Dune comes out, because I think it's going to blow a lot. Oh, of true, true. But, I should have said Villeneuve for sure. I, mean, for sure. I, I see them as parallels. They're 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 two of the greatest directors of our generation, I think. And I'm watching very closely to um, Chazelle. Damien Chazelle is a little bit younger and a little bit less experienced. Has already put out three incredible films. I'm really excited to see what he does. 
Um, I would say Villeneuve though is the almost the 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 mix between the cerebral quality of Alex Garland and the Hollywood mogul of in some ways of Christopher Nolan. He's he hasn't made a film that's done gangbusters like Christopher Nolan, but he's on his way. Dune might be that film for him. We'll see. And I also think I I don't know why, but I feel a lot of parallels between The Prestige and Prisoners. Even though like they have nothing to do with each other, but for me they they were both movies made by directors whose wheelhouse is not that kind of a movie, right? Like the Prestige is like nothing like a it's not like what you think of when you think of a Christopher Nolan film. Prisoners is definitely not what you think of when you think of a Denis Villeneuve film. Yeah. And yet both of those movies are like way better than movies that would have been made by peers who specialize in that kind of film. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like the Prestige, I remember seeing that in high school or whatever when that came out. And being, and I saw it because I just liked Hugh Jackman because I was like an X Men fan. I, I wasn't even thinking that. I don't. I don't even think when I saw it, I knew Christopher Nolan had directed it. I was like, not. That wasn't really in a place where I was thinking that much about that. And I was just like blown away by how much better that was than my expectations were. And similarly, Prisoners. I, I had no idea who Denny Villeneuve was before I saw that movie. And as and halfway through that film, I was like, I will never not be interested in what this filmmaker does for the rest of my fucking life. You know? Yeah. Same. What was Great that other film that came out when, when Prestige came out? Uh, around the same time, yeah, there was another. Ma- there was another like magician movie with Edward Norton. Ed- Edward the Illusionist. The Illusionist. Yeah, I remember. The Illusionist. They, they both came out Beale. around the same time. Yeah, yeah, and I remember thinking, "This is not the Prestige." It was interesting, <laughs> no. but it was just cheesy and ridiculous. It was. Pre- it was pretty good though. But it was, the Prestige was like a piece of of genuine art because again, yeah. it's got this really great human story and it has this wonderful metaphor, like Dan was saying, right? Like. Christopher Nolan, part of why he's a successful blockbuster filmmaker, I know we're going over the length and it's midnight for me, whatever. Part of why he's a, a, such a successful filmmaker, whereas somebody like Alex Garland isn't commercially necessarily to the same level, I think is because Alex Garland, you have to kind of, and who I actually like as much, if not even maybe a little more than Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker, Alex Garland, you you really have to like open yourself up to just thinking outside of your body to uh, even figure out what's going on. With Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan, like the the sim the the uh, symbolism and the imagery is really overt and and a little bit like embarrassing sometimes. It's so clear what he's talking about, right? But it doesn't matter because the way it's, it's it so it, that universalizes it. But then the the experience of the film around that is so extraordinary that it carries the movie, right? With the prestige, the whole idea is that like that's you know the third act in magic, right? And and that like that's this sort of like really kind of on the nose metaphor for what the characters are going through. And it doesn't matter because the whole time you're like, okay, I know exactly what I'm watching, and now I get to see these pieces move down this game board in this amazing chess tournament that I'm never gonna forget watching. You know, the prestige is a, is, a, is such a such a better movie than I think it needed to be, and I fucking love it. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'll, I'll leave everybody with a, just a couple of last things to bring it back to uh, Inception. One, my celebrity crush will be super disappointed when she listens to this if I forget to mention her. So I, I do just have to say that Mal, not Marion Cotillard, but her character in this film, just I mean, the actress does do such a phenomenal job um, putting out the sp- very specific emotions that she needs to in those scenes. And so the anguish and the rage and the sadness on her face are just so damn real. I mean, when she runs, when Ariadne sneaks down into the basement and then she runs after them and he, and Dom, uh, sorry, Cobb closes the, uh, the grate and hits the button when she shakes, she, when she shakes the, the metal fencing and says, you know, you, you, you told me that we would grow old together, you know, and she's screaming. I mean, it's just like so heartrending. And, and again, just like the scene towards the end where he tells her that, you're just a you're just a shade of my wife you know i couldn't imagine you with all your perfections all your imperfections so that's not even really her you know and you get that moment also where arthur is describing her to ariadne because she's like wait he's they're still married and he goes no she's dead and she she asks him what she, what was she like and he just says she was lovely you know i just i love the i love what they did with that character she has such little screen time, you know, she's really not there that much, but what she delivers is just super powerful. Unforgettable. Yeah. She's, she's the power. So much power of the film is her. Yeah. She's like the heart of the film. Really? She's like guilt. She is the embodiment of guilt, you know? And again, another, another crossover with devs with this, anybody who's seen episode four of it, which Dan, have you seen episode four yet? No, I'm still on three. I need to watch. Okay. Well, well, there's a a, a very, a very, uh, almost identical sequence in, in devs. Um, about recreating the past and what if things aren't exactly the same, how pain, how painful that can be. I think that, yeah, I think her character is absolutely fucking incredible in that film. Yeah. She asked him, what do you feel? And he says guilt, you know, that's what Jamie, yeah. but there's a direct line. 
Um, before you go back to um, more trivia, just sure. one, one other thing I want to, before I forget, for for fans of Alien 3, of, of which we have at least two on this podcast, I don't know, do you like Alien 3 <laughs> yet? Um, yeah, but I really want to watch it again because I've only seen it a handful of times and you guys yeah, talk right, about yeah. so much, I really want to see it again. Well, th- th- this is this is one of the last things you can see Pete Postlethwaite in. Um, and I just yes, feel like oh. he deserves an honorable mention because he's just one of the great character actors of, of his generation and like... Uh, getting to see him, you know, in this Christopher Nolan film towards the end of his career was just was just really actually yeah. the big film for him was in the name of the father. And he won a best supporting actor for that role. Have you seen that film? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's amazing. He was in the, was in the town as well. Uh, he was very. Yeah, he that. was. Yeah. The Ben Affleck one. Right. But yeah. he was sort of a nobody for um, really because he started getting larger roles after Alien 3 because Alien 3. He was just this one bit character that you see twice. And then afterwards, all of a sudden he just skyrockets. And he was in Romeo and Juliet, also the the Baz Luhrmann one. But it, but his his screen presence, just like Ken Watanabe, is such that any role that he, I mean, that's what a great character actor is, right? Any role mm-hmm. that they're in, you just you just, or they're magnetized. You know, it's fucking amazing. And he's mostly dying in a bed in this film for like a few seconds, and still he's so magnetic. You know, what he delivers is incredible. Um, yeah. All right, we got to wrap, but I wanted to leave the audience with one last thing, which I won't, we won't have time to discuss, but I just wanted to leave the question, and that is something that it's a good example of going deeper into this film. Again, it's all right there for you. You don't need a genius to, you know, go do research for you, but the concept of this machine that, that allows for uh, shared lucid dreaming, we saw an explanation that when you get down to the limbo level where Cobb and his wife spend a lot of time, basically you can take 10 hours and turn them into 10 days, six months, 10 years at each level. And then like 50 years in limbo. Now imagine that you had, you used your vacation one year, right? Use 30 days or 10 days, however much vacation you get in a year. And you spent all that time on this machine and you picked a different person in your life that's, that's important to you. Maybe your grandfather that you never actually got to meet, or maybe someone that you do spend time with now, your children, whoever it is. Now imagine that you get to pick like 10 or 20 people and you get to spend 50 separate years worth of time with each of those people. Like who would you pick and what would you want to go build with them? Like that's something that I ask myself all the time watching this film. So I'll leave you guys with that. Um, thank you very much, uh, you guys, for working out the schedules. I'm glad you could both be here because uh, I knew both Patrick and Jamie would have their own unique insight into this film, and I really wanted them both here. Um, thank you, all you patrons who support us. Go to um, perfectorganism.com uh, forward slash support if you want to support our uh, Patreon program, which you guys already are, but spread the word if anybody else is interested. Um, or or bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. They will both take you to the same place. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, yeah, so we're going to keep working hard for you guys. Again, with a, a little bit of downtime from work here and there, we're going to try and record as much as we can. And uh, we will be back with you guys soon. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank you. Thanks, guys.